which will focus on God's forgiveness. And we're going to look at uh, not just the cross exclusively, but the back side of the cross. What happens when Jesus comes back to life and people start to interact with him again. And those of us who are sinful have our lives changed by the forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's going to be taking us over the next few weeks. And as we celebrate some things together uh, coming up on Easter, we're going to be really discussing the holiness of God. But there are going to be five questions in these next five weeks that we're going to answer uh, or try to answer. We're going to ask and try to answer. And so the questions are this. We'll look at the first one this morning. How do we understand a holy God? And then next week we'll talk about this question. How should we encounter a holy God? Then three weeks from now, how do we relate to a holy God? Then following that, how does God's holiness affect us? And then finally, we'll wrap up this series asking the question, how are we saved by God's holiness? And so we're going to talk through these aspects of holiness. Uh, and at the center of all of that this morning, to begin our series off, I want us to take a look uh, at something that I think is just remarkable. And it centers around the very presence of God and the throne of God. And so I know it's early and some of you lost sleep last night, but we love to celebrate the reading of God's word together. And so if you would join me, we're going to look in Revelation chapter four this morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter four. That was that sounded like you lost sleep last night is what that sounded like. Um, but it's OK. Uh, but Revelation chapter four, I want to take us to the center of the eternal throne of God for a moment this morning. And here's why, because sometimes I fear that we mistake who God is and who we are. And while we're made in the image of God, that we also need to understand that God is altogether different from us. And that even though we are called into proximity with God, that there is a way to relate to Him that we might miss if we're not careful. And just like we saw in the video a few moments ago, that the, uh, the aspect and the idea of God's holiness is beautiful, it's pure, but it can also be dangerous to approach God with impurity in our hearts, to approach God with anything less than His righteousness and His holiness is to put ourselves in a dangerous place. And so I want us to look this morning at God's throne room in Revelation chapter 4. And so read this along with me. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the full chapter together. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, and this is Jesus talking, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There were also seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then respond and fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, as John is shown this amazing glimpse of the presence of God, he describes everything around the throne. Did you notice that? That he describes the things that are coming from the throne and the things that are in front of the throne and the things that are around and above the throne. But John doesn't really describe God in his presence. He's standing right there at the throne of God and describing all the things that he sees, and yet he doesn't try to describe God. And we look at that and go, well, yeah, of course he doesn't try to describe God. How do you describe God? How does one take uh, a a personal face-to-face glimpse with God and then write it down? I mean, think about what Scripture has told us about God over the course of time. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul wrote Timothy and said, God lives in unapproachable light. If you think about John chapter 4, verse 24, John said, God is spirit. So how do you describe that? How do you write that down? Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. No one can see the face of God and live. God said to Moses, you may not see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so here's John standing in the throne room of heaven, being given a glimpse into God's eternal glory, And he describes everything he sees around, and yet there's no description of what God looks like. There's no description of how God uh, appears, because you can't describe that. The only description we get of God is from the seraphim who are around the throne. These are the angels uh, that have six wings. Um, The Bible describes them as using two wings to fly, two wings to cover their faces, and two wings to cover their feet. They are in the presence of God day and night. I don't know if you caught it or not, but the most interesting thing to me in that whole thing is that they have eyes all around them, like there's just eyeballs everywhere. That's weird. I don't know how you feel about that, but when we get to heaven and see that, it's going to be a little bit of a freak-out moment for me. And so uh, when you think about these angels, these seraphim, the, the Bible says that the only description that John tries to give us of God is what they proclaim about Him day and night for all of eternity. They have one job. You ever seen those jokes like people who mess up? You had one job, you messed it up. These guys have one job. They don't mess it up. Here's their job. Day after day, night after night, for all of eternity, they fly around the throne of God and they proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And they have been doing that from eternity past. They are doing that in this moment, and they will do this for eternity future. They will always constantly proclaim the holiness of God because they dwell in the presence of God Himself. And there's no other way to describe God than that. He is holy, holy, holy. And so this morning... I want us to try to understand a little bit about God's holiness uh, and see some things that we need to understand and know. In Scripture, if you want to em- uh, emphasize the importance of something, you repeat it. And so a lot of times Jesus in His teachings would say, Truly, truly, I tell you. Or if you liked the King James Version growing up, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Right? 
And so anytime Jesus would say something like this, or anytime someone would proclaim something that they wanted you to pay close attention to, they would repeat it. Truly, truly means listen, listen. I have something to tell you. This is important. I repeat it. Only once in Scripture is something repeated three times. The only thing that's repeated three times is the description of God in His holiness. God is not just holy. God is not only holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. He is a type of holiness that we can't grasp and comprehend in its entirety. And yet, I'm going to take five weeks and try my best to talk about this. But here's what we think about when we look at God. That God is not just holy in the sense of He is like us in what we might consider holy, but He is distinctly holy. We're going to talk about the difference in that in a minute. But the angels repeat repeat the primary attribute of God day after day for all of eternity. They constantly proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then I love this. But the Bible describes that around the throne of God are 24 other thrones. And on those 24 thrones sit 24 elders. All right? Now, we have elders in our church. Uh, elders in the church uh, exist to help make decisions to lead the church to be spiritual guides to the church. The elders in the book of Revelation don't do any of that. The elders have one job. The elders listen to the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they respond appropriately to this description of God's holiness. Listen again in Revelation chapter 4 verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they were created and they have their being. Can you imagine being in the presence of God? And for all of eternity, you have angels who are flying around the throne of God proclaiming He is holy, holy, holy. And it responds in you. The response in your heart is to fall on your face before that God over and over and over again and respond, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You alone are worthy. Here's my crown that I put at your throne. From you all things exist and in you all things have their being. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was in His midst to come. You alone, God, are worthy to receive honor and glory for in you all things created and have their being. Holy, holy, And it just goes on and on and on for all of eternity. The worship around the throne of God because of His holiness is something we have never even grasped. And I don't think we fully will until we stand before Him face to face for eternity. And at that moment, I think we'll be exactly like the elders that when the worship of God is taking place all around us, that we will fall on our faces before God and we will worship Him. And we will lay our crowns at His feet. So what does the word holy mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? If you're taking notes this morning or want to follow along on the YouVersion Bible app with us, there are some things that you'll see that I want us to, uh, to talk through. It's a difficult word to put into definition because the word is so foreign to us. Uh, In fact, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, wrote this. The difficulties involving the definition of holiness are vast. There is so much to holiness and it is so foreign to us that the task seems almost impossible. 
In a very real sense, the word holy is a foreign word. But even when we run up against foreign words, we hope that a foreign language dictionary can rescue us by providing a clear translation. The problem we face, however, is that the word holy is foreign to all languages. So no dictionary is adequate to the task. Now, another problem in defining holiness is that the Bible uses the word holy in more than one way. And so I want us to look this morning at a couple of ways, a few ways that the Bible talks about holy. The first one is the one that's most um, most clear to us, probably. It's the one we probably think about the most as it relates to us and the most simple way that we can understand God. And so the first definition that I would give you on your outline is this. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means that there is a moral purity about Him. That there is a moral purity that the Bible uses the word holy to relate to God's goodness. And so when we think about God, we think of Him as being pure. It's customary to think of holiness as purity, as being free from every stain, holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. And so there's moral purity. And this is how we think about ourselves in terms of holiness. When God says, you be holy, therefore, because I am holy, we start to think and assume that means then that for me to be holy means that I have a moral purity about me, that I need to get rid of any trash or filth or sin in my life so that I have a moral purity, that there is a distinct pureness about my life. And yet, that's not the best definition that the Bible would give us about holiness. That's secondary to the one that's most important. And the most important definition simply means this, to be separate. And so the second blank on your outline is to be separate or to be set apart. We think about this in the terms of the ancient uh, term, which means to cut. To be separate or set apart means to cut. So in our terms, in in common vernacular, we might say something like, uh, that athlete is a cut above the rest. He or she is just better than everyone else. They're a cut above. Or that steak you want to have at lunch today, you're going to order the one that's a cut above the rest. Like you're going to get the best cut of steak. It's above and beyond all the others, right? Uh, We're not going for the sirloin here. We're going for the T-bone or the New York strip or whatever it is. I want the cut above. Or a piece of fabric that we would say, this is good fabric, but this one is a cut above. This one is amazing. I mean, it's It's so well made, it's so thick, it's so heavy, it's a cut above all the others. That's what it means to be separate or set apart. Now, as it pertains to God, though, when we think about this, we need to remember that God is not just separate or set apart or a cut above once. God is separate, set apart, and a cut above three times. He is holy, holy, holy. He's not a little bit different from us. He's not somewhat set apart from us. He is vastly set apart from us. He is unique in all of His characteristics. He is a cut above, a cut above, a cut above anything else that we can imagine. God is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart from sin in ways that we can never imagine. His purity and righteousness and holiness are vastly separate from us. They are vastly different from evil and impurity. In fact, the last one on your outline, as it pertains to the definition of holiness, means that we could talk about God's holiness as transcendent holiness. It's a word we don't use very often to talk about something as being transcendent. When we think about that, it means that the word means to climb across. That's what that word literally means, to climb across. To go from one side to the other. Uh, Or it could be described as exceeding usual limits. 
Like this is what's normal. Here's the exception to that normalness. It exceeds the normal limits. It spans the bridge from one thing to another. It climbs across. It is transcendent in holiness. And God is transcendent in holiness. It means he has climbed across to go above and beyond a certain limit. So where we might look at our life and say, for me to be holy means that I have something that's sinful in my life and I want to stop doing that thing. Maybe it's foul language whatever it might be in your life that you just go, this is just a perpetual, constant thing in my life, but I'm going to stop. I'm going to ask God to help me stop, and I'm not going to sin in that way anymore. Where we might be able to stop sinning for a period of time, where we might be able to to attain a certain level of holiness, and we might be able to say, I'm not going to participate in that anymore, where we will stop something for a limited amount of time, for God and His transcendent holiness He would not stop it because it is impossible for him to sin. He is so set apart from sin that while we wrestle with how do I stop sinning in some small way for a certain period of time, God is so set apart from sin that it's not even a temptation for him. He cannot sin. He is holy in all that he does. He is holy in all of his ways. So when the Bible says, Uh, there's a slide I want to put on the the screen here that's a a quote from R.C. Sproul. And he says this, uh, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He almost seems to be foreign from us. Like, how do you wrap your mind around this nature of holiness? This level of transcendence. This level of being a cut above or separate from. And yet... We still talk about and say, remember from earlier in the message, that we were made in the image of God. Which means then that if we were created in the image of God, that we are like Him in some way. So what does it mean to say we're created in the image of God, and yet He is so far removed from us that we can't even imagine what He's like. That He is so foreign to us. How do we reconcile that and say He's foreign from us in His holiness, and yet we're created in His image. We're made to be like Him. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a couple of things. The first is this. We're not created in the physical likeness of God, that we share His physical qualities. We're created in the image of God as it relates to His attributes. That's the next blanks on your outline. We're not created in the physical likeness of God, that we share in His physical qualities. We're created in the image of God as it relates to His attributes. In other words, we don't physically look like God. God is spirit. What does God look like? I mean, the Bible gives us metaphors about God. The Bible will occasionally say God reached down His hand or God will make His face shine on you. And yet, the Bible is very clear that God does not have human form. These are ways for us to help think about God. But the Bible is very clear that God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So if God doesn't have a physical form, how do we appear in the image of God? What does that mean? Well, it means that we have attributes of God that we relate to Him. That He shares His characteristics with us. So we think about these and we call them communicable attributes. Think about it like disease. There are communicable diseases. There are non-communicable diseases. There are non-communicable attributes of God. That God is uh, in all places at all times. That God is all-powerful. That God is all-knowing. He does not share these attributes with us. As much as I would love to be all-powerful, I am not, nor will I ever be. 
As much as I would love to be able to read my wife's mind and all knowing, that's never going to happen. Fellas, not for any of us. And so you think about this and you go, God has non-communicable attributes. Things that set him apart that are distinct and unique to him. Then he has communicable attributes. These things that he shares with us. That he says, as I've made you in my image, I want you to know that you're like me in this. That you have the the, uh, capacity for compassion, for mercy, for love, for justice. And so these are things that we would look at and say, these are communicable attributes of God. They're things that he shares with us. And holiness is one of those attributes. And yet, it's not holiness in the full scope of God's holiness. His holiness is so set apart from us that while we have the attribute of holiness in our life that's a possibility, it will never be on the same scale and same level as God and His holiness. So, when we think about God, and we start to begin to think about His holiness, we start to understand that holiness is not just another descriptor of God. That when we start to lump these attributes to say God is loving, He is just, He is kind, He is merciful, He is holy... That we, don't, that we need to be careful not to just lump holiness in as another attribute of God, that it's a characteristic of who God is. Because the truth is, is that the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. It is a transcendent holiness, which means then that every attribute of God is wrapped in His holiness. His love is holy love. His mercy is holy mercy. His justice is holy justice. His compassion is holy compassion. That everything about him is wrapped in this holiness. And so we begin to see that God is set apart and transcendent because of his holiness. And this is why, for us, holiness is so much greater than just moral purity. Right? Like, this is a bigger thing to strive for than just to be nice or to be pure, as pure as you can possibly be. Moral purity is a good thing that we should strive for. It's an aspect of holiness, but it's not the full picture of holiness. This is why in the church, for a long time, we've done a disservice to young people, to teenagers, to young adults, uh, in regards to sexuality, where we'll talk about things and we'll say, you know what, you don't need to have sex until you're married. Why? Why should I not have sex? Sex is fun, right? Yeah, sex is fun, but only you should only do that in marriage, right? And so that's where it belongs. Why? Well, because you need to be morally pure. And if you have sex outside of marriage, God says that's wrong and maybe you could get a disease or it'll ruin your future relationships. And so just don't have sex before you get married. And we make it all about this moral purity. Stay morally pure. What if there was a bigger way to talk about this in regard to God's holiness? To say to people who are waiting to be married or hope to be married at some point in the future, to say, listen, here's the idea. Don't have sex before you get married because God has a holy standard for your life. And the way that you respond to His standards reflects His holiness in your life. And so as you wait for the one person that God's brought into your life to engage in that relationship, what you're doing is offering yourself to God and it's reflecting to everyone watching that there is a holiness that God prescribes for us and that you are living underneath that holiness. Man, that's a bigger picture to wait for than just don't do that. It's not good right now. Here's something to strive for. Be holy because I'm holy. Wait. Whatever it is, do it because of the holiness of God, not because of 
just to be morally pure. There are enough morally pure people in our world. We need people who are living under the Lordship of Christ who are pursuing holiness. So God calls us as His followers to that life of holiness, which we're going to talk about in more detail in the weeks to come. But holiness is dependent on our understanding of His holiness. So I want you to take a look at a passage of Scripture with me. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. This should be on the screen for you. This is what it says. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, the whole thing about the creatures who move along the ground, God's giving his moral law. He's giving them those things again, like the video described a few minutes ago, that if you touch a certain thing or do a certain thing that it makes you unclean, then you, therefore you can't relate to him. So this is one of those areas that he's saying, don't mess with stuff like lizards and snakes and things. Those will make you unclean. That's kind of what he's talking about. But the bigger picture here is this. I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Now, when I read this and other verses like it, Leviticus has several mentions of this passage, be holy because I'm holy. First Peter talks about the fact, and, and he quotes Leviticus in First Peter. He says, be holy because God is holy. And here's what I immediately jump to. This is my responsibility. I've got to be holy. Be holy. Be holy. Be holy. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy. Because that's what I'm called to. That's what God asked me to do. Be holy. And yet... If we begin there, which I've done so often in my life, I miss something really important. That this verse is not about me being holy. This verse and others like it are about God and His holiness. It's all centered around Him. He begins it by saying, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. When we think about this, any manner of holiness in our life, when I start to, to look at this verse and go, okay, God's telling me to be holy. I've got to be holy. I've got to figure out how to be holy. I want to be holy. And all I have to compare it to is what my own personal definition of holiness is or how I look at your life and think you're holy, so I'll try to be at least as good as you, if not a little bit better than you. And yet if we do that, we will completely miss the fact that all of this surrounds and is centered around God. I am the Lord your God. We should start there. If I want to have any measure of understanding about how to live a holy life as a follower of Jesus, I need to reflect, think, and deeply meditate on the holiness of God. It starts with Him. He says, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. And if we jump into this idea of going, be holy because it'll make me morally pure and everybody will look at me and think, uh, man, what a great life they have, then we miss the mark. We miss the idea that God is calling us into a holy lifestyle and into a holy relationship because He is holy. So here's the next blank on your outline. My personal holiness is dependent on my knowledge and awareness of God's holiness. To attempt to be holy without knowing what true holiness looks like is impossible. So we must start with God. My personal holiness is dependent on my knowledge and awareness of God's holiness. Now, I enjoy coaching my kids' teams. I just finished coaching my youngest son's basketball team. But imagine if I went into practice on the first day and said, Okay, kids, be basketball players because I'm a basketball player. Go figure that out. And I never show them any of my basketball skills, which are vast. Or I never teach them anything in practice 
that I never give them drills to do that help them understand the game of basketball, to know the game of basketball, to learn the game of basketball. If I just tell someone, hey, be good at basketball because I'm good at basketball, or I was at one point in time in my life, you do this because I am this. But I don't ever let them get to know the game of basketball as, as I understand it. If I never show them my skill in the game of basketball, if I never open up that door to them to know and have knowledge and understand, this is what it means to play basketball. When we think about that same kind of thing when it comes to God, God doesn't just instruct us to be holy and then hope we figure out what it means. He shows us His holiness. And He teaches us through His Word what it means to be holy. And He says, if you will get to know me, if you will spend time with me, if you'll reflect on me, meditate on who I am, spend time in my Word, if you will learn about me, you'll better understand what it means as a follower of Jesus to be holy because I am holy. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When we think about the fear of the Lord, that's a reverence, it's an awe, it's a holy fear. It's that idea of coming into the presence of God, just like the video depicted a few minutes ago of the, uh, the priest standing in the temple and the holiness of God showing up and him just killing over. I heard some of you guys laugh at that. It's pretty funny. Uh, and so when he just kills over because he's encountered the holiness of God and there's impurity in his life. And in the same way, there's true that it's, it's reverence. When we think about the fear of God as the beginning of, of understanding, the beginning of, of wisdom, the fear of God is to have a, an awareness of God, an awe of God, a reverence for God. But it's also to know that God, in His holiness, is dangerous. And when we try to come before Him with anything other than the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ and His blood offering for our sins, then we're going to stand in the presence of God in a very dangerous way. And so God is to be feared. So Jesus said we should fear God in the sense that He has the authority not only to, to kill us, but to throw our body and soul into hell. So we should approach God in a couple of different ways. Number one, that there's this fear and reverence and all, but then God also gives us permission as we have a relationship with His Son to enter into relationship with Him and into His presence as a friend, that He gives us permission to call, uh, to call Him our friend. So we have to approach Him with the utmost caution and respect. And as we discover more about God's holiness and we become more aware of what holiness looks like, holiness is always going to demand of us that we pursue God in a new way that we pursue after Him with an understanding of who He is and what we're going to bow our lives to. Um, when Heather and I were going through premarital counseling before we got married, uh, we were given a workbook to do. And this workbook is called Getting Ready for Marriage Workbook. It has pretty flowers all over it. They've since then redone this, and it's a lot cooler now. Um, but one of the things that was asked in here was just there's tons and tons and tons of questions to answer. Uh, and one of the, the sections particularly was, uh, who does what? And I would answer, and she would answer, and then we would come back together and compare our notes and go, where did we get things right, and where do you think and believe differently than I do, and why? Uh, and is this going to be a problem for us if we think and believe differently? And so we answered all these questions, just a few. Uh, who goes to the grocery store? Who takes care of the kids when they're sick? 
who decides what insurance to buy, who decides what TV programs to watch, who goes to the PTA meetings, who makes the decisions that the children can go play. And this was, became very easy for me. It was just like, Heather, 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 Heather. Um, do the lawn work. I'll take that one. Um, you know, and so all these things, but most of them were like, we'll both do that. And, uh, but the truth is, is that after answering all of these questions and after hearing her answers to all of these questions, I knew a lot more about Heather and how she thinks, right? Like, we never talked about a lot of these things before. Premarital counseling is great for that. It puts you in a situation where before you get married, you have to talk about things you would have gone, oh, I would have never thought to ask that question. I would have never thought to talk about that. Let's discuss why we think differently here. And after answering all of these questions, I knew more about my wife to be. But it wasn't until we were married and I messed up in some of these regards that I really got to know my wife. Or if I did something that she liked that I really got to know my wife and how she thinks and what she believes and how she acts and, be, and behaves and responds. And God is like that. He says, if you want to know what it means to be holy, you get to know me. You spend time with me. You understand who I am. And then you'll know more what it means to be holy. If you start with holiness at your personal understanding of what it means to be holy based on somebody else's life or your own moral purity and perfection, then that's going to be a, a mark that's far less than what God's expectations are for holiness. And so to end our message this morning, I want to give you four things to answer the question, how do we get to know God? So four things quickly, how do we get to know God? Number one is this, listen to God's word and receive it as the Holy Spirit interpret it interprets it listen to god's word and receive it as the holy spirit interpreted interprets it that's a difficult one here's where you start though you begin with the holy spirit it's so important that we read god's word and that we ask the holy spirit who inspired this word to teach us what it means that we don't just jump in and say i'm going to try to figure this out for myself or i'm going to start with me we start with the holy spirit and go holy spirit will you Reveal to me today what you want to say and help me to receive it so I better understand who God is. Listen to God's word and receive it as the Holy Spirit interprets it. Here's number two. Note God's nature and character as his word and his works reveal it. So as you read God's word, pay attention to what it reveals about the nature of God, how he thinks, how he behaves. The nature and the character of God are ultimately what we should be shaping our lives to be like. And so as you read Scripture, pay attention to the nature of God and the character of God. What's He like? How does He behave? What does He do? What does He love? What does He hate? How does He respond? How do we get to know Him? Here's number three. Accept His invitations and do what He commands. Accept His invitations and then do what He commands. God is calling us into an amazing journey with Him. A pursuit that will transform our lives if we'll accept it. And if we'll do what He says, then He will radically transform us and change us to be more like His Son. We know we're disciples of God if we do what He says. Jesus told us that. And so when we learn to accept His invitations and do what He says... He will fill our lives with an amazing journey that will focus on Him. But we're not in full proximity or in full relationship until our proximity to God becomes what it's supposed to be. That we're close to Him, that we draw near to Him. So accept His invitation and do what He commands. And then finally, recognize and rejoice in the love that He has shown in approaching you and drawing you into divine fellowship through 
Jesus. That we recognize and rejoice in the love He's shown in approaching You and drawing You into divine fellowship through Jesus. The Holy God of the universe has called us to know Him even as He fully knows us. You have been invited to participate in the divine nature. 1 Peter chapter 1 makes it clear to us that we have been chosen by God, called out by God, and drawn into the divine nature. A relationship with Him that will change everything about us. And so when we think about our relationship with God, I would just ask this question to close us out. Can you imagine how silly it would be for a man to propose marriage to a woman and after she accepts and they get married, he says, now listen, I want you to understand, I have no intentions of acting like a husband to you. I'm going to maintain my single lifestyle. But I like this relationship. I kind of like you. I want to keep you around. But I have no intention of being to you what you need or what I'm called to be. And yet, how often do we treat our relationship with God that way? That we enter into relationship with God. I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell when I die. I want to have a relationship with God. And so we enter into this relationship with God and we thank Him for the salvation He has. But then we tell Him, but I don't really have any interest at all in bowing to your authority or doing what you asked me to do. I want to be in relationship with you as it benefits me, but I don't want to do anything to have my life changed. Well, first, if that's the case, I would say you're deceiving yourself that you think you have salvation from God if you're not willing to enter into that relationship and fully submit to His authority. Second is that you're invited into something that's so much bigger than you can imagine. And as you come into that relationship, God desires to change your life, to change my life. He's calling us to something deeper. He's calling us to be like Him. And so He tells us, because I'm the Lord, consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I'm holy. So our life's pursuit, and what we're going to talk about over the next five weeks, is what does it mean to know a holy God and to walk in fellowship with Him and to strive for holiness in our lives. Let's pray together.